Yeah, you can't polish a turd, is what you're saying. Shine it up a little bit, though. That's my unpopular opinion. I actually think, yeah, you probably can polish a turd, to be honest. The Mythbusters actually did. And they've polished a turd on Mythbusters. Yeah. Okay. We've said turd too many times for a family-friendly podcast. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Square. Millions of Square sellers use the Square app marketplace to discover and install apps they rely on daily to run their businesses. And the way you get your app there is by becoming a Square app partner. Let me tell you how this works. As a Square app partner, you can offer and monetize your apps directly to Square sellers in the app marketplace to millions of sellers. You can leverage the Square platform to build robust e-commerce websites, smart payment integrations, and custom solutions for millions of businesses. And here's the best part. You get to keep 100% of revenue while you grow. Square collects a 0% cut from your sales for the first year or your first 100 Square referred sellers. That way you can focus on building and growing your Square customer base and you get to set your own pricing models. You also get a ton of support from Square. You get access to Square's technical team using Slack. You get insights into the performance of your app on the app marketplace. And of course, you get direct access to new product launches. And all this begins at changelog.com square. Again, changelog.com square. Welcome to Go Time, your source for diverse discussions from around the Go community. Subscribe today at GoTime.fm and follow the show on Twitter. We are at GoTimeFM. Special thanks to our partners at Fastly for delivering Go Time super fast all around the world. Check them out for yourself at Fastly.com. That's all for me. Here we go. And welcome to Go Time. I'm Matt Ryer. Today we're talking about logging, something we all do. Uh, don't no need to be embarrassed about it. But we'll, are we doing it right? Uh, are we logging the right things? Are we logging them to the right place? We're going to find out today. Joining me, John Calhoun, of course. Hello, John. Hey, Matt. How are you? Not bad, mate. Not bad. How, how's your week been so far? Pretty good so far. Yeah, it's Tuesday, isn't it? So I shouldn't really ask that question. Silly. Never mind. Uh, we hope that the rest of the week's as good as yesterday. We're also joined by Ed Welch, who is a swell fella who's been two kinds of engineer and two kinds of manager, and will do any job as long as he's having fun. Hello, Ed. Welcome to Go Time. Hey, Matt. Thanks for having me. Absolute pleasure. So, yeah, logging. We all, I think, know what logging is, but let's just be clear. Logging, what is it? <laughs> the fun part about logging is it's probably the first thing that everybody does when they start writing software, right? Everybody's first intro into writing a program is usually a hello world, mm. which is, at least in my opinion, a form of, of logging. So it's probably the most common way and the more sort of most ubiquitous way that we get state out of our application, some kind of view into what it's doing, some kind of idea of what's happening. So at its most basic, it's just some indicator of like what our applications are even up to. Yeah. So it's kind of like sometimes I'll have in the beginning when I'm writing something, I'll have like lots and lots of logging going on. Because like you say, it's a great way to see what's going on and get some insights. It's like a really easy, simple way to do that. But usually I'll go and kind of clear that all out and remove it all because it's, it stops being useful at some point. But is that right? Should I do that or should I leave it in there? You're probably ahead of most. I, I think that largely people, you know, when they write a log statement, it's it's probably there forever. You know, I'm not sure how often people really go back through to, to scrutinize what they log. So, you know, I would certainly think that you're going to gain from that, right? Like having more valuable log messages and sort of more relevant is is useful. But I think that in terms of that quantity, as long as they contain useful context or information, you shouldn't really be looking to sort of over remove them, right? I'm imagining some of your scenarios are uh, writing logs to like help debug stuff. And if you're anything like me, there's probably some time where you catch yourself doing a sanity check of like, we're in this function, just because you're like, is the code actually getting to this point where it's supposed to get? Mm -hmm. 
And I can imagine that those ones, yeah, over time, stop adding value. Like once you have tests and everything, you know it's all working. It's kind of like, is that running every single time that function runs really adding value? Mm-hmm. Whereas like other parts of it definitely could be. Yeah, I tend to do that for marking bits just that it reached it. I'll just put monkey or like monkey two, monkey three. So that's probably why I go through and remove the log statements. But also like if I do, if I'm doing test driven development, I will tend to log a bit less really, unless there's a specific kind of tricky behavior, something that I don't understand. So I really do use it to sort of observe what's going on. I inherited a, a code base a few years back where Congratulations from an old uncle. Yeah, yeah, it was. <laughs> old uncle died. <laughs> it was really. I leave this code base to Ed. <laughs> no, well, yeah, we'll just go with that. So my uncle <laughs> left me this sweet code base, and he was very sort of I don't know the the thorough and inconsistent. Every function call had a log line at the beginning that would seem the name of the function and the entry, and then the values that were passed in, and then an exit and. To be honest, I, I've never done that. I've never gone and built software that has that level of verbosity. I mean, they were at debug level. There were times it was extremely useful, especially as an inheritance and his untimely passing, and that I wasn't able to ask him questions mm-hmm. about those log lines. So it, it did make understanding the application a little bit better. So I think the my learning from that had more to do with maybe don't log monkey one and monkey two, instead log something like, here's where I am and here's the sort of state at the time. Here's some values. And because that particularly ended up being useful is like trying to understand why something was or wasn't working. It's like it got to here and things looked correct. So there's a lot of tools that exist now that maybe make that easier, like debuggers and tracing and you know, even in your tests. But there's certainly an element of logs are generally always available. And so having some at least checkpoints through a process that give you insight into that process. Yeah, one trick that reminds me of that does work for me, if I've got a program that where there's quite a bit of logging going on, I will do a thing where I log out a load of hyphens, just some dashes, and then in Go, defer immediately the same thing. And that's a neat way of wrapping up really the in and that, that thing, basically the in and out of a function, just so you can then see, you know that the logs between those lines are relevant just to that function. That works if you've just got one instance of the program running, which you normally do in dev, but it doesn't work if you've got multiple instances running, really, does it? I think it becomes sort of one of the things that I'm going to give people advice on logging is that the more context you can put in the log line, the more useful it is. So if you have, whether or not you have access to the host name and if you're logging application or sort of frameworks or systems introduce that at another level, but a log line without context isn't really very useful. So it doesn't give you, I would go a little bit farther than that. Like not only do you want to know the sort of machine and the distributed system that it's executing on, but you need to know the order number or the user or the trace ID or something that lets you trace that through the flow of the application. Typically it's hard to coordinate events over big systems, especially if it's different disparate database systems and things that all log sort of differently with different formats. So put a lot of context in your log lines or remove them if they don't have any, because the usefulness of them, especially usually what happens, right, is you go search for that contextual information. You go search for the trace ID or the order ID or the user ID, and the results you get back are only going to be shown that have that info in it. You're likely never going to see the log lines that don't have that info. Then I wonder... Should you standardize the format then if you're going to be using these logs in this way? Or because obviously it's it's just a string, isn't it? You can just print out anything you like from your program. <laughs> yeah. Should we be strict about what format we're printing in? Probably. It's kind of a hard problem, right? Like the whether or not you have control over the logs from some of your applications or not. Um, if you're building in your own app, you're writing your own logs, like having some consistency is always helpful. One of the things that I think are interesting about log lines is this sort of battle between the humans and the machines. So we're talking about humans looking at log lines, but it's not uncommon now that log lines go into analytics and you know other systems security, right? So having the format be structured becomes really important for how easily it is for a machine to parse those log lines. Mm. Arguably having a visual format that's easy to parse for humans is true too. So commonly I would say JSON is maybe what you would find the most. 
It's probably not my first pick for a structured format because I think it's harder for humans to read. It's very easy for machines to read. And specifically, JSON becomes very, very hard to read if you have complicated nested objects or you build large JSON documents. So one of the things you're typically viewing a log line is it will exist on horizontal space on your screen and then vertical space is your number of logs. So if you try to pretty print a JSON object in order to be able to view it, you then turn one log line into like tens or hundreds. And so now you've optimized very poorly for being able to look at those logs quickly. Mm. Uh, there's a, you know, an alternative that I like a lot that's common in Go, probably more than I've seen in, in other languages, log fumpt. So having key value pairs that are separated by space, basically log format. You're not Matt. Yeah. <laughs> Just, I know how much you like fumpt. I did like it. I wasn't going to comment, but yeah, I'm pleased you said it. Fumpt. Log fumpt. So it's kind of an interesting compromise on machine parsability and human readability. But ultimately, having structure does become really important because almost guaranteed you're going to need some tool to help you parse those logs or strictly you're going to parse them with a machine for other purposes. Yeah. See, JSON would also probably encourage you to put more complex objects in. Whereas with logfumpt, are we talking key value pairs there? Yeah, and which is the nice thing too. So I would generally tell people, I don't have a problem with JSON logging and it's in fact the easiest and sort of most approachable for most logging frameworks. I would highly recommend keeping a flat structure as a practice though, right? Like just do key value pairs in, in JSON. I think part of it definitely comes down to how your logging affects how you're going to consume it. Because I know the first time I ever used JSON logging, it was game changing in the sense of like, oh, I'm like, I can filter on these things and like, it'll make my life a lot easier. But you're right. The first time you see it in just like plain text, you're like, oh gosh, I can't read this anymore. But depending on the tools you have, certain tools will like help alleviate that pain. So you can start filtering things and all of a sudden it'll prettify things, you know, make things pretty for you. And if you have the right tooling to do that, like there's services out there that do it in different options then it's kind of okay. But I get what you're saying with the, the key value pair. It's kind of like a nice middle ground where you can still read it, but it's still going to have that machine readability. Yeah, and it, the other reason to keep the object flat, because you, you're right, the tooling that exists out there usually facilitates this, but it also introduces, in a lot of cases, another query language. So to manipulate JSON documents, you usually need to use like JQ or JMS Path or some other query language that you have to figure out how to access elements of the JSON object to return them. So there's, there would be, I was sure, a reasonably good debate about like what makes a good log line versus what's information that should go in a database, right? Like if you're generating huge documents with <laughs> hundreds of lines and values. And I see this in even some pretty famous places. A lot of the logs that we get out of Google are massive JSON documents with massive nested elements in them. And I find that they're hard to work with both as humans and for parsing for machines. And, you know, I think that the more you can keep that structure flat, I think the happier, you know, you would generally be. And if you need a complex nested object, is the log line the right place for storing that information? Maybe a good sanity test or a sniff test. We won't go as mm. far as sanity test yet. No. Like thinking about it that way, you said like some things are better fit for a database. Do you consider things written in a database to potentially be logs? An example I can give is I was building a web service once and I forget why, but for some reason we wanted a way to actually record web requests and the response to them to make sure things were going correctly and to, there was some other reason we were doing it. I don't remember why off the top of my head, but I know that one of the things we did was we we're like, well, you can't really take an entire web request and like just throw it into the output. It's going to be really hard to do anything with it. So we took the parts we cared about and we were storing that in an actual database table and we would essentially clean that up every so often. Luckily, we like it wasn't a huge project at the time, so we could get away with it. I imagine Google scale that might get a little bit tricky, but uh, for us that worked. And I consider that logging, but like with the caveat that like we're storing this in a database and it's kind of a little bit different. Yeah, but that's kind of structured logging, isn't it? Like it had that feel to me of like you entered a function and then like when you exit the function, you're kind of like, this, these are the things that happened. And that's roughly what we were doing. It was just, we're like, we need to store this somewhere where we can query it and actually look at the data and, and you know, try to do stuff with it. That's it was really fascinating in the sense that it touches a little bit on the types of logging that we see too. That falls a little bit into the category that are more like event logs or access logs, or they're like very specific things that happen that have useful context and I guess the question there that I find interesting is like, is there, is there a right amount or too much data? You know, what point 
from an implementation standpoint, the tools that you have available and the tools that you're using maybe dictate what's a better fit there. Hmm. But yeah, the other types of logging that we kind of started talking about are more like what people introduce when they're writing code, right? So this is the stuff that helps me understand if my application is working or where it's working or how it's working in, you know, maybe even just the sort of overall life cycle of the program itself, you know, in logs. But you think about access logs from reverse proxy or you're describing orders and events where you have like complex information coming in. Yeah, I think that's a really good question about where you would draw the line on and what sort of systems make sense for. The only advice that I could give around this in some experiences that I've had is don't make your sort of primary logging in terms of what gives you visibility into your application stored in the same thing that you need to run. So like don't store those logs in a database because what happens is when you have trouble with your database, you can't view your logs and you can't see what the trouble is. Or if your database, if there's an error, then it logs that there's an error, but it can't log to the database. So that's an error. Yeah, <laughs> it's very useful. I've seen in, in sort of older software systems that I work with before the kind of the systems that we exist today for aggregating and working with logs, like it was pretty common to store logs in a database. But then when you had trouble with the database, which was usually the thing you had the most trouble with, you couldn't tell, right? You couldn't see what was going on. <laughs> yeah, a lot of that probably comes down to like the life cycle of the product too, because I... Like where I tend to see that type of approach being like not okay, but like kind of okay is, you know, if you have like a two person startup and they're just trying to slap something together and get it up and going, then you kind of cut some corners here and there. You know, you can't have six different services up and running because it's just hard to manage that. Mm -hmm. But like as something gets much bigger and, and grows, then it's like, okay, now it's time to actually look at like we need a dedicated place to put these logs and actually consume them. Yeah, on that question of consuming the logs then, Eric from the Gopher Slack. And by the way, everybody, don't forget, we're on Slack. You can join the chat live, GoTime FM channel. Eric has done just that, Eric with a K. Eric asks, will the key value pairs always be in the same order with logfunct? Because mm -hmm. I imagine if you see, if you visualize and you, you're looking at the logs, it would be quite useful if they all lined up, wouldn't it? It's going to be subject of whatever library implements that. So in most of the applications that I work with, we use GoKit and they're always consistently in order and the way that they're written. Like I said, the libraries that implement log oomped, JSON is more common, but I think there's support in others as well. So I can't speak to their consistency and ordering, but I think that would be a very valuable, like humans are really, really good at pattern recognition, right? So like if you can get data in front of us in a way, even in log lines, I can tell a funny story here if you, <laughs> I had a job where I worked with computers that would run on on vehicles and we would have trouble where sometimes that they would boot and behave differently. And I found myself, we were shipping the syslogs from those machines back to central place and I would review the syslogs to try to find instances of the computers that misbehaved. And the fastest way that I could do that was I could zoom way, way, way out so that the text wasn't legible but I could look at the length of the log lines and you could see the pattern and you could scroll through the oh. log lines very consistently because it was really easy to spot the ones that were all the same. Mm. And then you could add a little bit of color to that too and it made it even easier, but it became very easy to see the ones that didn't act properly. So having consistency in your log output is a huge value for human parts. Machines tend to not care. Maybe it's, there's some efficiency gains if they're consistent, but that would be a good feature to have is consistently orienting your, and I think probably most JSON serializers are going to be consistent. I think most serializers in general are probably going to be consistent. It's just a question of whether they guarantee that over dates and things. I imagine if you're passing in key value pairs, it probably logs out in the order that you do it. And therefore it's up to you to make sure you're consistent in your code mm -hmm. to get it right. And that thing of context is interesting. I have a project where we actually use the context to carry, like goes context.context .context to carry some context. You guessed it. And that gets passed into the, the logger when you write, call a log line, the first arguments a context. How do you feel about that, Ed? Because it's very useful for like, you talk about some of the things of like user ID maybe and, you know, the host name and things like that. It's the kind of thing that you could do in some middleware somewhere or do it in one place. And then it is consistent. Yeah, definitely. The applications that I work with do this pretty commonly. So like trace ID is often propagated through the context or is always propagated through the context. 
something like a tenant ID in a multi-tenant system. And there's helper functions that, that we have that will pull that out to, I don't remember if we implemented the interface for GoKit to just sort of make a logger that automatically did that, or if you just have the functions that pull them out, but it's a really useful. I wish Go went one step farther here. One of my sort of griefs with Go is the context deadline exceeded errors and context canceled errors because in a distributed system, you get a context deadline exceeded. And I have, I don't know who canceled that context or what deadline yeah. rather exceeded or timed out. Like it could have been four systems away, you know? And, and so it would be up to you to introduce context into the context, sorry, <laughs> that you could, when you're the one that times out, you'd have to say, Hey, I, you know, it's, it doesn't make it easy. I would be nice if the functions that you called. So like, you know, with timeout or with whatever could take a string that would just print, in whatever error block ultimately catches that context being canceled so that you could hmm. find it easier. <laughs> yeah, that's a nice... You could write a package that did that, couldn't you? I thought about this last night, <laughs> so the, <laughs> I'm not sure what it would look like to... I mean, you could do definitely something that catches it. Where it's tricky is how easy and sort of how, I don't know, organic would it be to use? Because hmm. a lot of times you're catching an error on a function and you have no idea what the error was. The error might have been that the context was canceled while you were executing that function. And you're just logging the error. Yeah. You basically now are thinking about wrapping all of your errors with this thing that would look for someone that's better at this than I am. I just know that I've, as much as I love how well that context cancellation allows you to control over network connections and things, I find that it leaves a lot of times confusion around what piece of the puzzle was the one that actually said no. Yeah, because in an HTTP world, if you are getting a request and the browser, like someone just closes the browser, that'll cancel it. That'll cancel the request. And and you may have, in your own code, you might be canceling context and relying on that. And then you can't tell the difference. My favorite is, so like Nginx or anybody that sits in the middle that times out will result in a context canceled error. And like, I mean, in my argument here, that would be not the most helpful, but somebody should know that it was their context that was canceled and say, hey, it was, it's me over here. I don't know who did it, but somebody closed this connection. I wonder if you could pass a string into the cancel function. Because yeah, you get back when you do with timeout or the other one with cancel, you get back the little cancel callback function thing. Could you pass in a string there? I wonder. Actually, th- that's an interesting problem. I'd, I'd be quite fun to explore that. I don't think I don't think we're going to. <laughs> I think the the <laughs> idea there, right, of how well and how useful the context is, but it does often lead. I know when I first started writing Go, I found that I was doing a thing that was sort of very Java esque because I really missed checked exceptions and I was trying to understand why an error. So I'm like looking at the type of an error and looking to see that it was deadline exceeded, and then I logged a message that said timed out because everywhere else in the rest of the world it's timed out and in go it's deadline exceeded and the sort of error handling in go makes us a bit bumpy you know i wish it was a little bit easier to we're way out into the weeds i'm just gonna shut up right now <laughs> i don't know before i start passing opinions i gotta save my unpopular opinions for the end yeah you gotta save it for the theme tune they don't count unless it's been played This episode is brought to you by our friends at Fire Hydrant. Fire Hydrant is the reliability platform for every developer. Incidents impact everyone, not just SREs. Fire Hydrant gives teams the tools to maintain service catalogs, respond to incidents, communicate through status pages, and learn with retrospectives. What would normally be manual, error-prone tasks across the entire spectrum of responding to an incident, this can all be automated in every way with Fire Hydrant. Fire Hydrant gives you incident tooling to manage incidents of any type with any severity with consistency. You can declare and mitigate incidents all inside Slack. Service catalogs allow service owners to improve operational maturity and document all your deploys in your service catalog. Incident analytics like extract meaningful insights about your reliability over any facet of your incident or the people who respond to them. And at the heart of it all, incident run books, they let you create custom automation rules to convert manual tasks into automated, reliable, repeatable sequences that run when you want. 
create Slack channels, Jira tickets, Zoom bridges instantly after declaring an incident. Now your processes can be consistent and automatic. Try Fire Hydrant free for 14 days. Get access to every feature, no credit card required. Get started at firehydrant.io. Again, firehydrant.io. I usually end up having dedicated code for context errors, like at the top of wherever they unwind to, I'll have some code because I probably want to do something different. And the other thing is, it's very normal to have context that gets cancelled. It's not, you know, it's an error. It's a sentinel error term coined by our friend and friend of the show, Dave Cheney. It's a sentinel error value type that you can compare against and can pass around. But it's not really an error, like not necessarily. So, I mean, if someone closes the browser and cancels a request, you want to stop doing the work. That's not an error. That's great. Should return great. That's great. Or something instead. Uh, that's great. I would support that. Yeah. I'll do a PR. <laughs> it's something I suppose to think about for folks that are, that are writing applications and they're using context and they should be. There's the context you can add values to it. So take advantage of that. Like most things probably don't get carried away. Keep the context simple, but, but you could consider, I don't know off my head how, like I said, how sort of ergonomic you could make this, but trying to include information about parent contexts and ultimately who cancels it, be able to log something to make your life a little bit easier to, to track down. Yeah. Where in a, yeah. you know, complex system, something said that took too long. Yeah, another interesting little thing that's quite nice to do in Go that I did once was I would, when adding values to the log, like using those helpers that you talk about that that these packages have, that would also return a little cancel function, which you defer immediately. And that then took, removed that value essentially, which you don't, you know, depending on where you're passing things around and, and how you pass things to, you may not need that but it's quite nice to use to be able to use go's actual language features when it comes to to doing this and solving these problems so that logging then in a way becomes really a first class concern of your application doesn't it yeah i mean i'm I'm a little bit biased when it comes to the sort of way we observe applications i spend all of my time working on a system that's designed around handling logs so Mm -hmm. that's why you're here though ed it's true yeah (laughs) the nice thing about logging is it's kind of always there, right? Like, like it's the one sort of most accessible way that we have to get info out of an application. The other forms that we have of observability tend to lend themselves to better, you know, use cases or different options or like distributed tracing can do a lot of stuff that's hard to do with a logger. I make an argument you could, but I would lose that argument, but it's there, right? It's always there to use it, to use it. Just make sure you have useful information in your log lines, you know, do yourself a favor, make sure you can search for that log line when it's printed. So it has to have something in there you'd be able to search for. And there's another one, I think when it comes to error messages, you know, a lot of times, depending on how you structure your logging and whether your logger is going to include the line number something comes from, I don't have strong opinions if you need to do that or not. Honestly, I would say just make sure you write error messages that are unique within your app, right? Like, like if you search for that error message, it should go to one place. Yeah, like monkey one, monkey two. Exactly, yeah. So maybe you were yeah. really onto something there. Well, that's, that's why I use different numbers. Yeah. How do you keep track of how many monkeys there are, though? Yeah, that is difficult. It, to be fair, it gets way out of hand very quickly. You have like a global monkey tracker that you... You do need to implement that yeah. monkey tracking. Yeah, and I did once mess up a loop and ended up with infinite monkeys. And... They, did, they produced no works of any kind of discernible literature whatsoever. So very disappointed there. Yeah. One way I think with error messages that you can accomplish this sort of uniqueness is the idea that you could consider error messages part of the runbooks for operating your system. So it's one thing to say like something timed out. It's another to say that timed out, but it's going to retry. It's going to retry 10 more times or it's not going to retry and like somebody's got to go fix it. or it's funny, like the when you're writing applications and you 
get to where you're logging an error message, you likely have the most contacts of anybody that's going to see that error message in years to come, right? So what can you put in there that helps someone make a decision about what they should do when they're operating that software? So they, you know, they got paged and they searched the logs and they found your error messages. How can you help them get out of that trouble or let them know what the system's going to do to recover from it itself? You know, because that is fairly common is there's lots of error messages about connections timing out or failing. And, you know, is there a way to communicate that app can still handle it, right? Go look and fix the source of the problem. I kind of love this about like the UX of logs is what we're really doing. And honestly, anytime I see like a sophisticated approach in any field, they reach that sophistication by caring about the audience or the user of that thing. And it works for web UIs and APIs that you write in Go and packages, programs. I mean, it works for everything, writing, you know. So I like the idea that I think that's quite an interesting change. I'm not sure everyone, because normally... I think people are quite selfish loggers. They're logging stuff they need. But I like that. Think about your audience and, and log for them. Log for your great nephew. One other place that's been useful is propagated all the way back through your API. So we have have limits in our application that you can hit for various things. So we will log something like, you've exceeded this limit, like contact your administrator, you know, or, or reach out to whoever administrates that, right? Like, or try again, or reduce your request, or fix your error, you know, or you've done, like, not uncommon in 400 type errors and user errors to give some insight into what people should do, but the more you can sort of describe how to get out of the error situation in the error message, the more self-serving and sort of self-documenting and probably less trouble tickets you're going to have to deal with. Mm. Would you link to, like, a runbook or link to a, a doc even? I don't know, because my experience with that is that whatever you link to ultimately will break, right? And no one will ever go right. back and repair that link. It's very, very hard to maintain. If you can link it back to like the source code in a pretty stable way, but what is the, you know, in, can you have a linter or something that finds broken links? I don't know, because it's yeah. most likely just going to be broken. Mm -hmm. A good point, then. So yeah, keep it self-contained. It's probably good advice. I once wrote a package for a coworker he was going to then implement it. So we kind of broke the work up like that. And I customized all the errors, all the error messages just for him. So I was like saying, look, come on, come on, mate. This is obvious. Obviously you're not supposed to pass that value in. You know, I was like trolling him in the error messages. That was fun, but not for him. <laughs> I've, I've logged messages before that are like the lines of like, this shouldn't happen. You know, like I wrote those log lines, <laughs> which is my favorite was is in like Java exception handling of you would catch an exception and then catch an exception within the exception. And it's like in a lot of those cases, like, I don't even know, but like, it's important to do this because somebody somewhere said I should do this. So even that is useful though, right? Like anything that explains your sort of mindset around why you wrote the error message or what you should do can be useful to the person that's troubleshooting that problem. So, you know, maybe have a little fun with it. <laughs> Another consideration here would be, maybe make this easier is if you pull your error strings into a central spot, you're doing inter internationalization of your application. This can be helpful. There was some tooling that made that a little bit easier to swap file names and you could just have your error messages be in multiple languages and make it easy to swap them out at sort of compile time or runtime with a, a configuration flag. But the putting them out inside where you can see them both lets you kind of easily review them to see if they're providing useful info as well as, I would say this is good advice that I don't use myself. <laughs> yeah. Well, on context then, maybe we could talk about log levels because this is a, something else that is quite divisive subject I've seen around. I tend to, like, and I feel like, you know, this is where you can, each line has a level. So it's either usually debug, info, warning, error, critical. Like there's loads of options. I'm sure you've come across even more. But yeah, like I, I find error and sort of debug information to be helpful. Warnings sometimes. But how do you feel about log levels? So I have some opinions here. Are they popular or unpopular? These are probably popular, but okay, I'll leave the music. Not everyone will agree, but the 
error is, is the easiest one for me. So I can start at error and warn, and then it gets kind of murky from there. But at error levels, I like to log at error level if there's something wrong with my application. It's my job. It's my responsibility to fix it. Makes sense. I like to use warning level when it's not my responsibility, my job to fix it. So I'm getting bad data. Some other downstream system is misbehaving. Something that like it's useful for me to go find, but it's going to be more useful probably for somebody else than me. Oh. That's my opinion on that. Now, when you go beyond that, so like debug is really fascinating because, you know, it ends up just being sort of a, a dumpster of log levels, right? Like so <laughs> everything ends up in yeah. there and it usually ends up being so verbose that people don't run with it. And if you're not running with it and most applications in my experiences don't have an easy way to do basically runtime changing of the log level output, hmm. like what good is it? Right. So. So they could see the argument to saying that you just log everything at sort of info and that would force you to go back through and remove log lines that aren't as useful. But you do have these cases where, I don't know, you write these log lines and instrument something in a way that's really interesting for specific cases. And you think, I could see myself hitting this again. What do I do with this? I would say that my experience with Go loggers is they lack some of the functionality that I've seen in others where you can do like per package level you know, different levels or sort of runtime reloading. And and maybe those packages are out there. I've just not used them, but those can be really nice to sort of handle that. Like, or trace level is maybe what you would do there. Something that's really, really specific, but only would want to enable it in a very small case if you have that control available. One of the uh, people on Slack had mentioned, I think it was Gabriel, had mentioned that he actually uses separate packages for like developers type debugging versus like production style or logging just to keep the two separate. And I think one of the main benefits there is that when you go to production, you can basically set everything it's a development style logging to just be a no-op essentially. And the code's there. Because I think that's one of the things, like you said, we've all written Hello World, but like there's kind of like two mentalities with logging. There's like the logs that are just for me right now while I'm writing this code or debugging some issue or whatever I'm doing. And then there's like the logs that are like have a lot more context and need to have like trace IDs and things like that. Because if you're running locally, chances are you probably don't need trace IDs. You know, generally speaking, you don't have enough requests coming in locally that that type of stuff's an issue. So it is interesting to think of it as like two separate, I guess, approaches to the something similar. Yeah. So do you? I've seen it where you'll have like a logger type that supports nil because in Go, of course, you can write methods that are safe to call on nil. You literally just check the receiver, and if it's nil, you just usually just return at that point. That's quite nice, but I've also seen it where you explicitly have nil or no op loggers or whatever. Does this all just depend on which package you're using or are there good practices there? I don't know that I have a good practices suggestion for that. My personal opinion would be to lean towards just the always log the stuff, right? Basically turn your debug logging level on and actually I got to decide if that's really my opinion because it is it is nuanced right like there are situations where the volume can be tremendous right and you mostly don't care but you do care right so so that's where i think in my opinion the sort of state of the art of logging needs to be better at this which is either your application or your logging framework or something that gives you the ability to control at runtime what's ends up being stored i know more times than not, you don't have debug logging on. You, there's some information that you want, but you can't get it because the application is running and likely restarting it you know, resets the error condition trying to troubleshoot. So it'd be better if you could leave debug logging on and then just drop it at the source until you need it or have sort of runtime log level changing as an option. Gets a bit more sophisticated. I don't know that I see this a ton, you know, at least in Go. I'm not seeing it a lot where you have that runtime capability. Somebody will probably point me, which would be great because I there's there's an element of Go and logging that I've always found a little bit frustrating, which is the the sort of lack of a standardized interface and the fact that your logger becomes very important to your system and therefore very hard to change. Mm. So we've talked about changing our logger in our app, but it's it's an effort, it's an opportunity cost, and it's like we'd have to be really sure that we'd need to do it. It works fine, but there are loggers out there now that have much lower allocation rate, which can really matter a lot too. If you're going to log a lot, you know, if you're going to log tens or say thousands of lines a second, like you're, you're paying for that in allocations and CPU, you know, it's, it's not free. Is it? More interestingly, you're 
potentially bottlenecking your application because almost every infrastructure that I see still logs to disk. Usually, uh, like say Kubernetes, it's the node disk and node disks aren't terribly fast. So you're more likely than not at some point blocked on your logger trying to write to a file on disk, which can slow your application down. This episode is brought to you by SignalWire. SignalWire offers APIs, SDKs, and edge networks around the world for building the realest real-time video and video communication apps with less than 50 milliseconds of latency. They use WebSockets to deliver 300% lower latency than APIs built on REST, making it ideal for apps where every millisecond and responsiveness makes a difference, like apps that need instant natural language understanding, real-time machine vision, or large-scale video and audio conferencing. Here's what makes them different. They use MCU, multi-point control unit that mixes all video and all audio feeds on the server side and then distributes a single unified stream back to every participant. That way, every participant in the apps you ship experience the same video and the same audio. Your apps have none of the awkward audio effects, obvious lag, and jumpy video. It's all smooth, great UX, creating a more lifelike virtual experience without compromising audio or the video quality. Head to signalwire.com slash video mention go time to receive an extra 5,000 video minutes. Again, go to signalwire.com slash video and remember to mention go time. Bill Kennedy, the famous hatted gopher, actually showed me an example once where there was a bug in the program and by putting a log line in, it because of that, because there was a cost to doing that, it changed the behavior of the program. So like that act of observing it almost uh, affected it, which is kind of amazing. Right. There's some, some Heisenberg in here or something, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Feels like that, doesn't it? Imagine if you didn't realize that though, and you're logging out and then it's telling you something that it's different to what you see when you then take the log line out. How, how infuriating is that? I think that's the, uh, the risk of using any language where you have concurrency and other things like that going on is that it's just, you always have to take for account that if that's, if you're using concurrency, there could be some case where adding anything in there could change the behavior. Well, I've got you, John. It's quiz time. We'll put some music in. I've just made up this segment. Oh boy. Quiz time. Quiz time. Quiz time. Quiz time. John, John Calhoun's joining me from, where are you from, John? Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania. Can't get more specific than that with you. I don't know what you'll do with that information. Uh, turn up at your house, am I? It's possible. Yeah, I do want to know your full address now. Well. No? No. Okay. Was that the quiz? <laughs> yeah. What's your mother's maiden name, John? <laughs> no. The real quiz is fmpt.print line, let's say, and log.print line. Where does each of those get printed to? Where does each get printed to? Yeah. Like, I assume fumped is os.standardout. Mm-hmm. Or sorry, the fumped one. The log.print line, I don't know if it's actually differentiated or not. I would assume mm-hmm. it's just os.standardout would be my guess. Okay, let's find out. That sound effect tells us that, oh no, John, unfortunately you're wrong. Log goes to standard error by default. So that's interesting. See, I wasn't sure if this is a trick question or not. That's the hard part. No, no. Well, with Matt, you can never tell. <laughs> yeah, but that would be an odd quiz. The worst part is in most terminals, you can never tell the difference. Like, yeah, that's true. Unless you're doing something specific, like piping it to an output file or something. This is the question then. Like, where should the logs go to? Do we want them in standard out? Do we want them? Should we put only the error level logs in standard error and other logs in standard out? Like, what do we think? I think people have like a lot of weird opinions on logging in general. Mm -hmm. I swear I talked with somebody who said like, if you're printing out a log statement instead of like recording a metric, that it should be an error that like some engineer has to go fix. Right. 
like to the point where like their app apparently has no logs. It's just all metrics. Hmm. And I think sometimes how people think about logs versus metrics are, they might kind of be the same thing. They're just like differentiating them differently. If that makes sense. I could give an opinion that I think is a little bit researched on that. Ed, before you do, we should just be honest with our listeners here. Yeah. You kind of built Loki, which is Grafana's logging thing. Tell us about Loki just very briefly, just because there's some important context, I think, there. I've certainly been a part of, of Loki. Lots of other smarter folks than me have done a, a lion's share of the building. It's not what I've heard. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're just being modest. I've been actually, you know, it's been about three years that I've been working on Loki now. So I'm kind of trying to think of the, like how I've evolved describing it over time. But this may dovetail in a little bit into what John was just saying. But uh, Loki, I tend to describe now as a time series database for string. So I guess... Before I talk about Loki, the, the part about the metrics versus logs is that I think is interesting is the, the information that they can contain and store and the sort of associated cost with that. So one of the things that I, when I talk about Loki as a time series database for strings is when we talked about that context, you can put in a log line. You can put a lot of information in a log line, right? Like we, within Loki, we log for every query, the results of that query and things like throughput and the lines process, process per second. And, the query and the org ID or the tenant ID or whatever, and all this information. And it tends to be extremely high cardinality. So where metric systems, it gets a bit more costly, right, is when you're trying to store huge amounts of cardinality. Like if I had a metric for every one of those things that I just said that had a tenant dimension on it, it would be a lot, right? So the other side of that question here, that coin though, is that that's a long string and to process that in a system requires parsing it and doing math on it. That's more expensive. It's more data stored on disk. So to me, the two play very nicely together in the sense of metrics make a really nice roundup or sort of overall approximation of high volumes of that kind of data. So you can look at metrics because it's a float over much longer periods of time than it's going to take to parse a 80 byte or 200 byte string. Where those become a bit interesting is so with Loki, we have a thing for recording rules where I can generate a metric from those log lines as they come in. And so what we'll tend to do is generate sort of roll-ups. So we'll generate like a 99% quantile on the query times by tenant. So now maybe I have cardinality of thousands of tenants, but the 99th percentile is taking all of those individual values and rolling them up into one metric. So the systems, I think, complement each other really well when you set them up to you can have very, very high resolution, very high cardinality data. It's just going to be a lot more expensive to try to query it over time and put those in your logs. And then you can roll that stuff up or create metrics, right? Just, just use the metrics you have in your system for higher volume requests, being able to keep an eye on a system that's doing thousands of requests per second a lot easier, showing that data over time a lot easier. So I think they play nicely with each other. I think maybe both extremes. I guess I could argue that you could monitor an app only with, well, no, you can make that argument either direction. I think to be honest, like if your apps, once they start getting big enough, you probably want specialized tooling for those types of aspects, metrics, logs, and, and traces, you know, for big distributed systems, like being able to view how your information propagates through a lot easier in, in a tracing system than it tends to be in searching for a trace ID amongst all your logs and looking at how each of those logs was formatted differently in the timestamps between them and trying to kind of reconstruct that same view. Yeah, we had an interesting question in the Slack channel, Eric, with a K's back. And Eric says, what about logs and testing? Do you ever include like assertions about what should be logged out? Have you ever done anything like that? Can we, uh, jumping back to your previous question, can we just say that when you're logging and testing, then maybe then you should write to os.standardair? I'm just kidding, but <laughs> just split it up that way. We never did answer that question if you want to go back to it later. Oh, yeah. Ed, logging and testing. I don't know. I mean, it happens from time to time. It always feels a little weird when you're sort of validating a log line, I guess. I'm trying to think of an application where, where I've seen that done. Usually it's in catching like an error message or something, like a sort of specific error you would, you would catch, which is, mm. becomes a log line. Yeah, I've done it once where it mattered what was printed out from the program, like it was in, very important. And so this is there was some slight... I think because I always do this little abstraction where I have a run method and main only just calls out to a run method and passes the sort of dependencies in. And I include standard out 
and standard error if I want to use them. I include even those as IO writers. So in, in test code, then you can use buffers or whatever else you want to capture it. And that is a nice way to, like, then you can make assertions about what is printed out. I don't know if it was logging out. It mattered what was printed out in that case. But yeah, and that was just standard out. So we didn't, we never did answer that. It'd be interesting if you have downstream processing on your log lines. Like it's, it is interesting because you build dependencies and now you're logging, you're talking about being kind of an API of your application and mm. maybe API is not the right term, but it's an interface that it kind of is, you know, goes out to. So you could do sort of testing on it to make sure you're not making breaking changes to the downstream systems. It's interesting if you find yourself in that world, you know, where you have those tight couplings. But if you're using JSON or even in the log log foomt, you can you could have tests to make sure that certain values are there. It's it's I'm not sure quite how to dig into that one. It seems like it comes down to the point where like if not having it there and it changing could break something, then you probably need to test it. Yeah, if it's part of your API. But if it's not something that's gonna be broken, it's just gonna be like a visual difference, mm. then you're probably okay getting by without it. Yeah, by the way, John, you won't believe this, but the little elves in the Slack channel have found the episode that Scott Mansfield talked about Go at Netflix on Go Time episode number nine. Was it nine? So if anyone wants to go back. I swear there was one that I was in as well that it got mentioned. So maybe it's been in multiple. It's possible. I swear it was one of the episodes we did on like um, metrics and things like that with a, a company that did metric software. Yeah. But I swear they had like a similar opinion along the lines of like, if there's a log message, somebody needs to be like, somebody should be getting paged right now. So it's just interesting to see the different approaches that people take to to writing software. Yeah, and that's what I wonder also is whether this sort of depends in each case. And anytime you have people with really strong opinions about tech, often they're working on something different. <laughs> you know, that's why I tried to be, you know, unpopular opinions loosely held. The one area that I think could matter in that sort of argument of metrics versus logs is that logs are an event, right? They have a distinct timestamp that's very accurate, right? Like metrics do not have that kind of accuracy, at least most of the time, right? Like by mm. sort of forced to do a roll up because of that's the optimization they make, which is really valuable. So maybe that event timestamp isn't, I don't know, it can be really important for troubleshooting to know exactly when the sequence of events happened. And a lot of times when you're sort of working within whatever the bound of your metric is, if the event happened, inside, say, a Prometheus scrape interval, you don't have any information to tell you what happened. And a lot of times logs can, can hide that context or rather show that, that context. It's without sort of knowing more context. Like, I'm sure it's a well-thought-out argument and that it works well, right? Like, you can build a system that works well that doesn't log. I mean, but logging is just the sort of, <laughs> you know, it's the thing, right? It's everywhere. Like, I think, you know, if we, we were going to talk a little bit more about Loki, the reason Loki exists is because of how sort of ubiquitous logging and some of the problems are with it, right? We talk about the variety of formats that exist for logs and like, you know, do you pre-process or post-process those to try to make them useful? How do you catalog and store and index that information? Where do you store it, right? Like people generate tremendous amounts of log data. You know, the numbers vary. The The Big side is usually terabytes a day, although I definitely know people say they generate petabytes of logs a day, which is just a mind-blowing amount oh. of data, right? Like to have to deal with and store. So yeah. when it comes to logging, right? Like that's the real question of where does it go? You had that question in there. Where do the logs go? <laughs> like, yeah. It's a good question because that's usually a disconnect between the person that writes code and the system and infrastructure that runs it, right? Like it's so becomes a little bit more important than what you log. I can't imagine petabytes of logs. I mean, nip through and delete some log lines, surely. I can't imagine how you'd use those at all. I feel like you just end up with so many, either that or you're like a crazy busy service or something. And then it's like, we need to do something different. Or you use a technology that then works in some abstract way on that data. That must be the answer. I'm not going to keep promoting Loki. Other log platforms are available. <laughs> so the way you could approach that, that would fit with, with Loki is the, what Loki does that's a little different from, from other systems is the indexing model. So the idea is to index a relatively small, we don't index the content of the logs themselves. We index metadata, think about like where the logs come from typically. So if you were going to ask a question of like, where would I go to find the logs? 
maybe like a table of contents a little bit. Like mm. you keep a relatively small index because an index in a database tends to be one of the more expensive operational pieces. So you keep a small index. And so for that petabytes, you would chunk that up into smaller and smaller pieces. And then Loki sort of optimizes around that scale side of it first, or the idea that your expensive parts tend to be on ingesting and storing that index and keeping that cost lower or that complexity lower. And then on the read side of things, it's a little bit more simplistic. It's just kind of brute force, right? Like, so if you don't fully index something and you don't know where it is, you got to go look through it. So you use those labels to narrow down that result set. But one of the things that computing is generally really good at now is parallelism. Loki optimizes around object stores. So it's a basically a strings database that's built against object stores, which also support parallelization really well and take a lot of the sort of nightmare of working with storage and make it somebody else's problem. And you can force your way in parallelism at, you know, many gigabytes a second to be able to get back to specific events that you're looking for. Mm. So it's kind of a trade-off between you pay more for that query time, but logs are typically something you write once and maybe query never or query infrequently. So that if your operating model is one that you write a lot of logs and you want to query them all the time, this might not be the best approach, but for the kind of developer and operator use case that usually an advantageous trade-off to be able to kind of control the query cost. Okay, I'm going to have to return an error to you though, Ed. Too many mentions of Loki. Done and done. <laughs> thought you were going to tell him deadline exceeded. Yeah, unfortunately it is going to be, we're coming up to deadline exceeded is on the minute, but they've still got time. So please, Ed, John, shut your faces. It's time for Unpopular Opinions. It's not Halloween. I don't know. I'm doing a spooky voice. Who's going to start us off with an unpopular opinion today? I noticed you've got six, Ed. <laughs> so I think it's funny because I I laugh every time I think about the goal is to have an opinion that people don't agree with. Yeah. Right. So, <laughs> so like if we had a KKK member here, he would probably win. I hope he would win. Yeah. Yeah. Not in a good winning way. Yeah. But we don't have him on. Right. So no. I'll phrase this. This is my favorite unpopular opinion. I'll phrase it in the way that's likely to be received as it's most unpopular, but it's a nuanced conversation. But my experience is that integration testing is usually a net loss, and I would largely recommend not doing it. Oh, that is that is an interesting one. I have such mixed feelings on integration tests. I've definitely fixed and found bugs in integration tests, right? I've definitely caught significant bugs. However the tremendous amount of anxiety and time that I spend and have spent looking at CI builds running for minutes or tens of minutes or, or more combined with just the propensity for integration tests to have false positives in my experience leads to those couple bugs. It probably would have been better if they just made it through to prod and we didn't catch them versus the sort of overall cost. So that's kind of where I am at within that loss is that they do tend to catch bugs, but I don't know if it's worth it. Hmm. Interesting one. See, I agree with you fully about the fact that like integration tests or tests that cover like more scope, like integration or, or larger is how I'd put it in like its scope, tend to be the ones that in applications I've worked on that just break and then nobody has time to fix them for some reason. And then they just continuously you have breaking tests and then some of you eventually has to fix it. It just can be a headache. But at the same time, like they've been incredibly valuable in some situations to the point that if I was taking your opinion and like, okay, we're going to act on this, it would be more along the lines of, I could maybe agree with not putting integration tests inside of like continuous integration, but having them available for local development. And like a developer has to actively say, okay, we're going to pass on this for now. Yeah. But I could see value in like not being like a hard requirement. Whereas like a lot of times with unit tests, it's very clear, like this should be passing. And if it's not, something's broken or the test needs fixed. Yeah. And that's where... If I gave that as my opinion, it wouldn't be as unpopular. <laughs> I really like the idea of sort of running against sort of operational data or a cluster. So like having tests that are running against systems, but like kind of the, I build some database inserts and run them into an in-memory database. And then it verifies some kind of data and that runs as part of a CI build. Like my experiences around those is like, it takes a long time to build them. It's really hard to change the data if you have to go in and make a change to the system. It's hard to understand what the original 
sort of creator of the test maybe even had in mind. And when it does flake out because testing a distributed system and it maybe didn't do retries properly or at all, or something changed, like, you know, it's like you said, the people that usually are the ones that have to deal with it, don't have the context to fix it. And it's just holding them up. It's like, I didn't even change this code and this thing is breaking, you know, I'm, I'm really unhappy with my life. So maybe the key to success with integration tests is keeping their scope really, really small and purposeful and then running them on a on demand kind of thing. Yeah, that's very interesting. We'll put this out on Twitter at GoTimeFM to see if indeed that isn't popular. You wrote down another one though, Ed, which I feel like you might you might have an even better chance of of winning this whole thing. <laughs> the one that you have highlighted that Windows is the best desktop OS. Say it again clearly for the Twitter clip. I believe Windows is the best desktop OS. <laughs> Okay, really? Specifically, Windows with WSL2 Mm. is everything that I've ever needed from a desktop OS. So a close second would probably be my Mac OS, although my experiences with Docker and Mac OS are frustrating, and my experiences with updating Mac OS and having it become less stable after every time it does an update. Mm. And in general, like the sort of expense of the Mac, you know, hardware and kind of hostility of the Mac support community has shied me away from it. And then I love Linux. I've tried for years and years and years to run desktop Linux. And I just don't, I just want my computer to work. You know, I want to join this podcast today and expect not to have any trouble. And yeah. that's Windows, man. Like that's where I'm at with, mm. with Windows. Also, like, I don't know. It's not, I'm not going to say that I love it, right? That Windows is great and doesn't have a whole host of its own problems. I just think it has least problem yeah it does have minesweeper does it i don't even know does windows 11 still have minesweeper can we find I out have no idea that'll be the clincher for me no it doesn't ah, okay. every time i've tried to code it all on windows there's always like little things that i'm sure i could eventually get past them yeah. like just one example i can press Control a to go to like the start of a line and Control e to go to the end of a line and windows Control a is going to select everything so like it all of a sudden doesn't do what i want and I don't know if there is a way to just go to the start of the line. There probably is. I just don't know it. It's probably got its own button, hasn't it? Go to start of line or... The home button on my keyboard, is that the... <laughs> You go in the start menu and you go to run and then you type move to start of line. Yeah, I, the keyboard shortcuts were the worst part for me trying to move to Mac. I could never get used to copy and paste. I could never figure it out. Hmm. So I think it's one of those things that there's definitely a difference between like command and control, but... Yeah. When you kind of get used to them, it's kind of hard to switch back yeah. at times. Yeah, that's true. The muscle memories. I got a new keyboard recently, and I just basically stopped using it. Does anyone want it? Like this, it's meant to be ergonomic, but I've already learned it the non-ergonomic way. My bones have changed now, so I and, and adapting back is tough. You know, especially as you get older, your brain gets less malleable. Doesn't it? Well, the other issue I have with that type, like, cause I, the keyboard you have, Matt, I, I have it and I was using it, mm-hmm. but like my issue I ran into was first off, my hand was broken for the last two months. So I was already really slow. <laughs> That's not your keyboard's fault, John. Well, no, no, but I was already really slow. So when the cast came off and I had a brace on, I'm like, I need to get caught up on work, not yeah. like learn a new keyboard. Yeah. <laughs> but then on top of that, I would go from this new keyboard. I think by default where a caps lock key normally is, was delete, which is great. Like it's cause I never used caps lock and I, you know, I'd start using it for delete. And then I went and got on my laptop at some point, you know, just on my laptop trying to do some work. And all of a sudden I'm just writing in crazy caps all over the place because I'm hitting the wrong button. And I'm like, I don't know how people do that mental shift of yeah. switching from one to the other. And I think that's probably the biggest issue I'd have with Windows is if I only used it and I got used to it, I could probably make it work. But I'd have to like fully commit and be like, I'm diving into Windows and I'm like, okay with that. Yeah, I feel that. That was because I had always used Windows systems in corporate environments. So, and like I said, the copy paste was sort of the worst one for me. And then you could go the route of remapping the keys, but like that never seems to be flawless. And Mm. so, yeah, it's, it's hard once you're well established. If you're going to a Mac, it's definitely not one to one because like control and command both do different things at different times. Yeah. So you still use control a little bit. You just use command more. But isn't it also true in Windows that it's app, it depends on the app, like it's per application, whereas it's copy and paste is always the same across the whole operating system. 
on the Mac. Windows is pretty much always Control C, unless it's interrupt on the terminal, which is why I think Mac did it right, right? Like it shouldn't be Control C, or they should have made another character for interrupt. But yeah, that's the one that gets you in trouble. Is when you're working in a terminal in Windows, like, oh yeah, can I use Control C to copy? So a lot of times it's Control Shift C, but other than that, it's always Control C. I remember it used to be you highlight it. And then it's done. Wasn't it that? Like you just highlight it in the terminal. Mine does that. I set up Windows Terminal to do that now. It's my favorite thing ever. Like every time I highlight something in the terminal, it automatically copies it. And I don't know why anyone would not want it to do that. It's the handiest thing ever. Yeah. Except when you accidentally click on the screen after you copy them. But then you use a tool to manage your clipboard history so that you can just go back. Yeah. Okay, great. No, that's all right. All right, great. Good stuff. Well, we're slightly over time, but it was worth it. Thank you so much, Ed Welch for joining us uh fascinating talk and dive into logs there. there's actually so much more we could talk about we may do logging part two return of the something let's brainstorm that and i'm not sure i think that was all i had but i'd be happy to come back that was really fun okay well it's nice to have you yeah. <laughs> and john calhoun was also here weren't you john i was here thanks for having me matt <laughs> always a pleasure see you next time on go time bye that's the wrong one. Oh, it was all so professional until then, wasn't it? <laughs> was it? No, it wasn't. Oh, good. I think I tuned out the exit song, so I didn't even notice. I was just like, okay, cool. We're listening to a song. Yeah, I know. But that's the unpopular opinion one, John. Press the wrong one. Well, no, it's fine. Because honestly, the editors are just, yeah, clean this up. Clean it up. We love you, editors, by the way. I could do with editors in real life, like on calls and that. You know what I mean? Like when you're having meetings, it would be great if you could have someone editing, yeah, cutting out the gaps. <laughs> I could hear how many times I said, um. You won't hear that in the final podcast. I know because I said it usually when someone else started talking. And so like, great, that was just going to get cut out because somebody else just started talking. Yeah. They literally will go through and, and neaten up like any gaps we leave if we talk over each other. Yeah, it's... It is really good. They do a good bit with the, with what they can. Yeah. Obviously, there are some times where it's like, nope, that's too hard. <laughs> yeah, you can't polish a turd, is what you're saying. Normally, we challenge them, you know. But Shine it up a little bit, though. Yeah, I feel like, I feel like, I actually, that's my unpopular opinion. I actually think, yeah, you probably can polish a turd, to be honest. The Mythbusters actually did. Did they do, a, and they've polished a turd on Mythbusters? Yeah. Okay, we've said too many times. For a family-friendly podcast. We, like, start with the potty humor and end with the potty humor. We did. It's a potty sandwich. Is this still in the show? Are we still coming here? We gotta- I mean, it's recording right now. Yeah, yeah. And we're still alive. I haven't played the final... This is all legally binding until I play the final music. So. Gotcha. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, we'll put that in the show notes about the Mythbuster thing, if this makes it in. Well, thank you so much again. And thanks for listening. See you next time on go time all right that is go time for this week thanks for hanging with us do you log all the things let us know in the comments there's a direct link to the discussion thread in your show notes everyone on the episode will be notified so it's a great place for questions follow-ups links to related projects and that kind of stuff if this is your first time with us don't forget to subscribe you can find all the ways at gotime.fm or by searching for GoTime in your favorite podcast app. We're in there. Special thanks again to Fastly for CDNing for us, to Breakmaster Cylinder for the Freshens, and to you for listening. We appreciate it. Next week, Johnny goes one-on-one with Mihalis Tsoukalos, the author of Mastering Go. Stay tuned for that one. It's coming up next time on GoTime.